How to explores unusual approaches to everyday tasks and looks at what would happen to you if you tried them. This is a book of bad ideas. At least, most of them are bad ideas. It's possible some good ones slipped through the cracks. Some ideas that sound ridiculous turn out to be revolutionary. Smearing mold on an infected cut looks like a terrible idea, but the discovery of penicillin showed that it could be a miracle cure. On the other hand, the world is full of disgusting stuff that you could smear on a wound, and most of them won't make it better. Not all ridiculous ideas are good. So how do we tell the good ideas from the bad? We can try them and see what happens. But sometimes, we can use math, research, and things we already know to work out what will happen if we do. Figuring out why a bad idea is bad can teach you a lot, and might help you think of a better approach. We all start our life not knowing how to do things. If we're lucky, when we need to do something, we can find someone to show us how. But, sometimes we have to come up with a way to do it ourselves. This means thinking of ideas and then trying to decide whether they're good or not. This book explores unusual approaches to common tasks and looks at what would happen to you if you tried them. Figuring out why they would or wouldn't work can be fun and informative while also leading you to surprising places. Maybe an idea is bad, but figuring out exactly why it's a bad idea can teach you a lot, and might help you think of a better approach. And even if you already know the right way to do all these things, it can be helpful to try to look at the world through the eyes of someone who doesn't. After all, for anything that everyone knows by the time they reach adulthood, every day, over 10,000 people in the United States alone are learning it for the first time. This book may not teach you how to throw a ball, how to ski, or how to move. But you can learn something from it. If you do, you're one of today's lucky 10,000. How to jump really high. Basketball players make some impressive leaps to reach hoops placed high in the air, but most of their reach comes from their height. An average professional basketball player can only jump a little more than two feet straight up. Non-athletes are more likely limited to jumping a foot or so. If you want to jump higher than that, you'll need some help. An average professional basketball player can only jump a little more than two feet straight up. If you want to be the high jumper, you have two options. 1. Dedicate your life to athletic training, from an early age, until you become the world's best high jumper. 2. Cheat. The first option is no doubt an admirable one, but if that's your choice, then you're reading the wrong book. Let's talk about option two. There are a lot of ways you could cheat at high jump. You could use a ladder to get over the bar, but that's hardly jumping. You could try wearing those spring-loaded stilts, popular with extreme sports enthusiasts, which, if you're athletic enough, might be enough to give you the edge over an unassisted high jumper. But for sheer vertical height, athletes have already come up with a better technique, pole vaulting. In pole vaulting, athletes start running, stick a flexible pole into the ground in front of them, and launch themselves into the air. Pole vaulters can fling themselves several times higher than the best unassisted high jumpers. The physics of pole vaulting is interesting and doesn't revolve around the pole nearly as much as you might think. The key to vaulting isn't the springiness of the pole, it's the athlete's running speed. The pole is just an efficient way to redirect that speed upward. In theory, the vaulter could use some other method to change direction from forward to up. The key to vaulting isn't the springiness of the pole, it's the athlete's running speed. Since the pole vaulter is running before they jump, their center of gravity starts off above the ground already, which adds to the final height it reaches. A normal adult's center of gravity is somewhere in their abdomen, usually at the height of about 55% of their actual height. 
Renault Lavilny, the world record holder in the men's pole vault, is 1.77 meters tall, so his center of gravity adds another 0.97 meters or so, giving a final predicted height of 6.08 meters. How does our prediction compare to reality? Well, the actual world record height is 6.16 meters. That's pretty close for a quick approximation. The world record for pole vaulting is 6.16 meters. But if you're willing to cheat more blatantly, you can go higher than 6 meters. A lot higher. You just need to find the right spot to launch from. Runners take advantage of aerodynamics. They wear sleek, tight-fitting outfits to cut down on air resistance, which helps them to gain greater speeds and thus soar higher. Why not take it a step further? The path of every falling object is affected by how the air moves around it. Ski jumpers adjust their shape to gain a huge aerodynamic boost to their jumps. In an area with the right winds, you can do the same thing. When sprinters run with the wind at their backs, they can reach higher speeds. Similarly, if you jump in an area where the wind is blowing upward, you can reach greater heights. It takes a strong wind to push you upward, wind blowing faster than your terminal velocity. Your terminal velocity is the maximum speed you'll reach while falling through the air when the force of the air rushing past balances out the downward acceleration of gravity. This is the same as the minimum upward wind speed needed to lift you off the ground. Since all motion is relative, it doesn't really matter whether you're falling down through the air or the air is blowing upward past you. People are a lot denser than air, so our terminal velocity is pretty high. A falling person's terminal velocity is around 130 miles per hour mph. In order to get much of a boost from wind, you'll need the upward wind speed to be at least in the same range as your terminal velocity. If the wind is a lot slower, then it won't affect your jump height very much. Humans are a lot denser than air, so our terminal velocity is pretty high. Instead of trying to increase the wind speed, you can try reducing your terminal velocity with aerodynamic clothing. A good wingsuit, clothing with sheets of material between the arms and legs, can reduce a person's sink rate from 130 miles per hour to as little as 30 miles per hour. That's still not enough to actually ride winds upward, but it would add some height to your jump. On the other hand, you'd have to make your running approach in a full wingsuit, which would probably cancel out the benefit from the wind. To add substantial height to your jump, you need to go beyond wingsuits, into the world of parachutes and paragliders. These large contraptions reduce a person's falling speed enough so that surface winds can easily get strong enough to lift them. Skilled paragliders can launch from the ground and ride ridge winds and thermals to thousands of feet. How to throw a pool party. You've decided to throw a pool party. You've got everything, snacks, drinks, floating inflatable toys, towels, and those rings you throw into the pool and then have to dive in to retrieve. But the night before the party, you can't shake the feeling that you're missing something. Looking around your yard, you realize what it is. You don't have a pool. Don't panic. You can solve this problem. You just need a bunch of water and a container to put it in. Let's figure out the container first. There are two main types of pools, in ground and above ground. An in ground pool is, when it comes down to it, a fancy hole. This type of pool can take more work to install, but is also less likely to collapse in the middle of your party. Above ground pool. The design of this type of pool is relatively simple, for instance, you can pour water into a fish tank on the floor. Unfortunately, water is heavy, if the hoop stress exceeds the tensile strength of the wall, the wall will burst. If the hoop stress exceeds the tensile strength of the pool wall, the wall will burst. 
Let's pick a possible material, say, aluminum foil. How deep can the water in an aluminum foil walled pool get before the sides burst? We can figure out the answer to this question, and lots of other pool design questions, using the formula for hoop stress. Hoop stress equals water depth x water density x earth gravity x pool radius, wall thickness. You can also rearrange the equation to tell you how thick the pool's walls need to be to support a desired water depth. Water thickness equals water depth x water density x gravity x pool radius wall tensile strength. The great thing about physics is that you can run these numbers for any material you want, even if it's something ridiculous. Physics doesn't care if your question is weird. It just gives you the answer, without judging. Hoop stress is strongest at the base of the wall where the water pressure is the highest. Now that you've got your pool, whether in ground or above ground, you'll need some water. But how much? Standard backyard in ground pools vary in size, but a medium size one large enough to have a diving board might hold 20,000 gallons of water. If you have a garden hose and a municipal water supply, then you could potentially fill your pool that way. But whether or not you can fill a pool quickly depends on the flow rate from your hose. If your flow rate is too low, or if you have well water, which may run out before you fill your pool, you might need to look for a different solution. In many areas, online retailers like Amazon offer same-day delivery. A 24-pack of Fiji water bottles currently costs about $25. If you have $150,000 to spare, plus another $100,000 or so for same-day delivery, you can simply order a pool in bottle form. As a bonus, your new pool will consist entirely of water shipped from Fiji. If someone else has a pool nearby, and they're at a slightly higher elevation, you can steal the water using a siphon. If you can connect the two pools with a tube of water, you can get water to flow steadily from their pool into yours. Water is made up of hydrogen and oxygen. There's plenty of oxygen in the atmosphere, and while hydrogen is certainly rarer, it's still not too hard to find. The good news is that if you get a bunch of hydrogen and oxygen together, it's easy to turn it into water. You just apply a little bit of heat, and the chemical reaction keeps going. In fact, it's pretty hard to stop. Asterisk if you have good water pressure and a large diameter hose, your flow rate might be 10 or 20 gallons per minute, this is enough to fill a standard pool within a day or so. Asterisk should you consider siphoning water from your neighbor's pool. Siphons can lift water up out of a pool and over small barriers like fences, but if the middle of the siphon goes more than 30 feet above the surface of your neighbor's pool, water won't flow into yours. Asterisk nowadays, if you want hydrogen, the best place to get it is by collecting and reprocessing the byproduct of fossil fuel extraction. How to play football. There are lots of games called football, connected through a complicated genealogical tree. If you're not sure which version you're playing, you can try asking the other players or watch what people are doing and guess from context. Most versions of football have a number of elements in common. They involve two teams of a dozen or so players, one team on each side of a large field, each trying to get the ball into the goal at the opposing team's side. They also almost always feature kicking at some stage of the game, but different versions allow you to touch the ball with different parts of your body. Most football games involve two teams, one team on each side of a large field, each trying to get the ball into the goal at the opposing team's side. There are lots of players on the field, but generally only one of them can have the ball at a time, so there are plenty of opportunities for you to just run around on the field without ever having to deal with the ball. You can just do your best to look busy, and as long as you don't get near the ball, maybe no one will notice you.
Eventually, someone may try to give you the ball, this happens a lot if you're playing American football, and you're the quarterback. Or you might get bored with running around and decide to take the ball, either by catching it or, depending on the rules, grabbing it from someone as they go by. If you're feeling ambitious, you can try to score points yourself. In football, as in so many sports, the general way to accomplish this is simple, get the ball to the goal. In some types of football, you can score points by launching the ball into the goal from a distance, which you can do by throwing, kicking, or using some other part of your body. If you want to try to score a point, but you don't think you can throw the ball from where you are, you'll need to take it to the goal yourself. But be warned, the other players may not cooperate, particularly the ones on the opposing team. The other team may try to put players between you and the goal to prevent you from reaching it. Unless you're much larger and stronger than the other players, this will be a problem, and, unfortunately for you, most football teams are made up of people who are both large and strong. You can try running around them, but it's harder than it looks, football players are pretty fast, and they sometimes know people try tricky stuff like that, so they're ready for it. If another team is trying to stop you from getting to the goal, running faster won't help. The players weigh as much as you, and there are a lot of them, so they'll be able to absorb almost all of your forward momentum. It would take a huge amount of power to push through them. One way to get through a wall of opposing players would be to take steps to increase your weight, speed, and power. A person on a very large horse has a combined weight roughly equal to that of an American football team, and the horse's high speed would give a momentum advantage, making it easier to shove through the opposing team. FIFA's laws of the game, the official rules for association football, do not contain the word horse, so you could try to make an airbud argument, there's no rule in the books that says you can't use a horse in football. There are rules against equipment, but a horse isn't equipment, it's a horse. FIFA's laws of the game, the official rules for association football, do not contain the word horse. The referees may not find your argument convincing. If you ride a horse onto the field, there's a good chance they'll try to stop you. Referees are typically smaller than players, and there aren't as many of them, but they'll still add to the crowd that you have to push through on your way to the goal. They'll likely also decide that your goal doesn't count, but at this point, you've probably forfeited that already. How to mail a package from space. Based on the 2001-2018 average, one out of every 1.5 billion humans is in space at any given time, most of them onboard the International Space Station. ISS crew members ferry packages down from the station by putting them in the spacecraft carrying crew back to Earth. But if there's no planned departure for Earth anytime soon, or if NASA gets sick of delivering your internet shopping returns, you might have to take matters into your own hands. One out of every 1.5 billion humans is in space at any given time. Getting an object down to Earth from the International Space Station is easy, you can just toss it out the door and wait. Eventually, it will fall to Earth, there's a very small amount of atmosphere at the ISS's altitude. It's not much, but it's enough to produce a tiny but measurable amount of drag. This drag sooner or later causes objects to slow down, fall into a lower and lower orbit, and eventually hit the atmosphere and, usually, burn up. The ISS also feels this drag, it uses thrusters to compensate, periodically boosting itself up into a higher orbit to make up for lost altitude. If it didn't, its orbit would gradually decay until it fell back to Earth. This shipping method has two big problems, first, your package will burn up in the atmosphere before it ever reaches the ground. And second, if it does survive, you'll have no way to know where it will land. To deliver your package, you'll have to solve both these problems. 
When stuff enters the atmosphere, it often burns up. When objects hit the air at those speeds, the air doesn't have time to flow out of the way. It compresses, heats up, turns to plasma, and often melts or vaporizes the object in the process. The fate of an object hitting the atmosphere depends on its size. The Earth's atmosphere weighs as much as a layer of water 10 meters thick. Very large objects, house size or larger, have enough inertia to punch through the atmosphere and hit the ground without losing much speed. These are the objects that leave craters in the ground. The Earth's atmosphere is a layer of water 10 meters thick. Small objects, anything from pebble size to car size, are too small to smash through the atmosphere. When they hit it, they heat up until they break apart, evaporate, or both. These surviving bits of debris hit the ground at relatively low speeds. If they land in soft dirt or mud, they can splash a little, but they don't leave much of a crater. To keep our spacecraft from being destroyed, we attach heat shields to the front, to absorb the heat from re-entry and protect the rest of the craft. We also give them special shapes, which helps create a cushion of air between the shock wave and the surface of the spacecraft, keeping the hottest plasma from touching the hull. To protect your package on the way down, you can use a heat shield, too. The easiest kind is an ablative heat shield, one which burns away as it goes. Then, you just need to shape the capsule so that it points in the right direction, heat shield in front, package in back, and send it on its way. Shape the capsule so that it points in the right direction, heat shield in front, package in back, and send it on its way. You may also want to add a parachute for the final drop, but if your package is something lightweight or durable, like socks, paper towels, or a letter, it might be able to survive the final terminal velocity fall relatively undamaged. Every human-built object which has been designed to survive re-entry has used a curved protective heat shield, with a few exceptions. How to make friends. If you just start walking, eventually you'll bump into someone. This might take a while. You might be lucky and walk right into a crowd of people, but if you're in a sparsely inhabited area, it could take weeks. Here's the average collision interval for a few different regions. Canada, 2.5 days France, 2 hours Delhi, 75 seconds Paris, 40 seconds Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta during a sold-out game, 0.6 seconds the field during the game, 3 minutes. Most of the time, random encounters don't lead to friendships. This is okay. It's clear that if you want to run into people physically, you'll have better luck in a packed football stadium than in the boreal forests of Canada. And if you do try the stadium, you'll have more collisions in the stands than on the field, although the collisions on the field will probably be more jarring. You'll have better luck running into people in Paris than in Delhi. Occasionally, you may hear someone complain that people walking around in public need to be shaken up from their routines, that they're too wrapped up in their own little worlds. But people have their own lives. They're not necessarily looking for a connection at the moment you are. So, if it's so difficult to connect, how do people ever make friends at all? We can get some insight into where people meet their friends through surveys. A Gallup survey of Americans in 1990 asked people where they met most of their friends. The most popular answer was work, followed by school, church, neighborhoods, clubs and organizations, and through other friends. Some sources of friendships remained relatively steady. At all ages, people made about 20% of their new friendships through family, mutual friends, religious organizations, or encounters in public settings. Other sources of friendships wax and wane throughout life. At first school dominates, followed by work. Then, as people approach retirement age, they become more likely to make friends around the neighborhood and at volunteer organizations. 
once you do encounter someone, how do you turn the acquaintanceship into a friendship? Here's the bad news, there's no magic formula or trick that can make someone your friend. If there were, that would mean you could apply it to someone regardless of who they were or how they felt. And if you don't care who someone is or how they feel, then you're not their friend. There's no magic formula or trick that can make someone your friend. Immanuel Kant developed a rule called the categorical imperative, which was at the center of his idea of ethics. He expressed the rule in several different formulations. The second formulation read, in part, act in such a way that you treat humanity, never merely as a means to an end, but always at the same time as an end. Whether or not you buy into the philosophy of the categorical imperative, it's good practical advice, because people can tell when they're being treated as things. Whatever our faults, humans have countless millennia of experience in judging the intentions of others, a skill much older and deeper than our ability to put our feelings into words. We can be short-sighted and confused and make lots of mistakes, but we can smell disdain and condescension from a mile away. So, while encountering people might be easy, there's no single set of steps you can follow to befriend them, because friendship means caring about how people feel. And there's no way to decide how they feel yourself, regardless of how much research or thinking you do. You just have to ask them and listen to what they have to say. How to send a file. Sending large data files can be difficult. Modern software systems have moved away from the concept of files. They don't show you a folder full of image files, they show you a collection of photos. But files linger on, and will probably continue to do so for decades to come. And as long as we have files, we'll need to send them to people. The simplest, most obvious way to send a file is to pick up the device the file is stored on, walk over to the intended recipient, and hand it to them. Carrying computers can be difficult, especially the earlier ones that were the size of a whole room, so rather than carry the whole computer, you can try detaching a piece of the computer containing the file. You can then bring this piece to the other person and let them transfer it to their own device. On a desktop-style computer, the files may be stored on a hard drive, which can often be removed without destroying the computer. On some devices, though, file storage is permanently attached to the electronics, making removal more challenging. A more convenient and less destructive solution is removable storage. You can make a copy of the file, put it on a device, then give the device to the person. Carrying storage devices around is a surprisingly high-bandwidth way to transfer information. A suitcase full of micro SD cards contains many petabytes of data. If you want to transfer very large amounts of data, mailing boxes of disk drives will almost always be faster than transferring them over the Internet. A storage device is a high bandwidth way to transfer information. If you want to send data to a specific location that's too far to walk, but not convenient to reach by mail, say, a nearby mountaintop, you could try using some kind of autonomous vehicle to carry it. A delivery drone, for example, could easily carry a small satchel of SD cards containing terabytes of data. Quadcopter-style drones don't work very well over long distances, thanks to the limitations of batteries. If a drone has to carry its own battery, it can only hover for so long. If it wants to hover longer, it needs to carry a bigger battery, but that means more weight and faster power consumption. You could increase your range by making the drone bigger, adding solar panels, flying higher, and going faster. Or you could turn to the real masters of efficient long-distance flight, butterflies. Monarch butterflies travel thousands of miles during their migration across North America, with some traveling all the way from Canada to Mexico in a single season. Their extreme range puts drones, and even many large aircraft, to shame. 
Another butterfly species, the painted lady Vanessa Cardui, is even more impressive. It flies from Europe to Central Africa, a 4,000-kilometer flight that takes it over the Mediterranean Sea and the Sahara Desert. If you want to send your file to someone who lives along the migration route, could you get a butterfly to carry it for you? Butterflies fly much more efficiently than drones in part by soaring. They seek out thermal columns and mountain waves, then hold their wings steady and ride the rising air upward like a vulture, hawk, or eagle. Butterflies can carry weights. Volunteers with groups like Monarch Watch tag tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of monarchs' butterflies each year to track their migration and monitor their population. The smaller tags weigh about a milligram, but monarchs have completed their migration with larger tags that weigh 10 milligrams or more. Micro SD cards weigh several hundred milligrams, comparable to the weight of a butterfly, so butterflies would have a hard time carrying them. But there's no reason a storage device can't be made smaller. Micro SD cards contain memory chips, and the storage density of these chips might be up to a gigabyte per square millimeter. Given those sizes, a butterfly could easily carry a tiny chip with a gigabyte of data. If your file is larger than that, you could break it up across multiple butterflies, and send multiple copies for redundancy. Micro SD cards weigh several hundred milligrams, butterflies would have a hard time carrying them. When your data finally arrived at its destination, the recipient would have to check a lot of butterflies to assemble all the pieces of the file. You may need to develop some kind of touchless butterfly scanner that allows them to scan many butterflies at once. If you tag 10 million butterflies with tiny pouches containing 5 milligrams of DNA storage each, the total capacity would be about 10 zettabytes, 10 sextillion bytes. That's roughly the total amount of digital data in existence in the late 2010s. You could avoid that problem, and increase your bandwidth, dramatically, by using DNA-based storage. Researchers have stored data by encoding it into a DNA sample, then sequencing the DNA to recover it. Systems like this can achieve densities far beyond anything we do with chips. It's possible to store and recover hundreds of petabytes of data using a single gram of DNA. It's possible to store and recover hundreds of petabytes of data using a single gram of DNA. And if the sun is warm, the winds are favorable, and it's the right time of year, you could use butterflies to send someone the entire internet. How to charge your phone when you can't find an outlet. The easiest way to charge your phone is to plug it into an outlet. Unfortunately, they're not always easy to find when you need them. Sometimes, when you find an outlet, there's something already plugged in, such as someone else's phone or an unattended piece of equipment. If you carry a little portable power strip around, you can sometimes unplug the cord for a moment and plug it into your power strip, then use one of the other outlets, although you may want to exercise caution while doing this. If you can't find an outlet at all, your task becomes a little more difficult. Instead of being given energy by a friendly wall, you'll have to take it from the environment some other way. Here are some ways to capture energy in an airport or a mall, water and air. Water There may not be actual rivers in an airport, but there is often running water. Water flows out of faucets and fountains, and there's no reason you can't use this water to generate electricity just like a hydroelectric dam does. Water from faucets and fountains can be used to generate electricity like a hydroelectric dam and charge your phone. You don't need to build a whole tiny hydroelectric dam. Since the building's water system holds the water in a reservoir and directs it into pipes for you, you can skip all that and mount a turbine directly on the mouth of the faucet or water fountain. 
There are actually companies that manufacture these turbines, either to run small pieces of equipment attached to pipes or simply as a replacement for a pressure relief valve, to extract some usable energy from water. In the late 19th and early 20th century, many buildings had running water but no electricity, and these sorts of generators, called water motors or hydroelectric dynamos, enjoyed brief popularity. The amount of power available from a pipe can be surprisingly large. A water supply with a pressure of 30 psi pounds of force per square inch and a flow rate of 4 gallons per minute can produce over 40 watts of power, which is enough to power several LED bulbs, charge dozens of phones or even run a small laptop with multiple browser tabs open. Humans extract energy from various natural processes. We burn things for heat, we collect energy from sunlight, we take advantage of underground heat, and we harness the movement of wind and water by making them turn the blades of turbines. Air, unfortunately, wind power isn't a great choice for capturing energy indoors. There's plenty of air circulating in airports, but wind flowing out of a ventilation duct generally carries a lot less energy than water flowing out of a faucet and is harder to capture efficiently. A tiny windmill the size of a handheld portable fan, placed at the exhaust grate of an air conditioning system, could probably produce about 50 milliwatts of electricity, not even enough to keep a single phone charged. Even if you covered an entire exhaust vent with fans, you'd struggle to get even a fraction of the power you could get from a faucet. The sun floods the whole solar system with light, even the empty parts, and will continue to do so for billions of years without pause. All you have to do is put up a solar panel and capture a tiny amount of it if your choice power source is the sun. Conclusion Some ideas that sound ridiculous can be revolutionary. Smearing mold on an infected cut sounds like a terrible idea, but the discovery of penicillin showed that it could be a miracle cure. On the other hand, the world is full of disgusting stuff that you could smear on a wound, and most of them won't make it better. Not all ridiculous ideas are good. So how do we tell the good ideas from the bad? We can try them and see what happens. But sometimes, we can use math, research, and things we already know to work out what will happen if we do. Do not try any of these ideas at home. The author of this book is an internet cartoonist, not a health or safety expert. He likes it when things catch fire or explode, which means he does not have your best interests in mind.